0: If you'll turn with me to John fifteen, please. John fifteen. We'll begin reading in verse twenty-six. John fifteen, verse twenty-six, and we'll read through to chapter sixteen, verse eleven. John fifteen twenty-six through sixteen eleven. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. You will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts of the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do, because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your glorious, holy, and mighty Word. We thank You for the fact that we can trust every jot and tittle of it. Lord, I pray that this morning you would cause all of us to be attentive, to hang on every word that comes from you. Lord, I pray that those who are lost in this congregation, who perhaps still in their sins, that you would open their eyes to see the sinfulness of their sin, and that they would then you'd open their eyes to see the beauty of the one and only Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. For Those who already know Him, I pray that we would grow in our relationship with Him. That He would strengthen us for the fight that is before us. That we would have realistic expectations, but that we would find great encouragement and comfort from these words this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. You can be seated. Hawk Nelson remarks on the power of words in his somewhat recent song. Entitled, simply, Words. They've made me feel like a prisoner. They've made me feel set free. They've made me feel like a criminal. Made me feel like a king. They've lifted my heart to places I've never known or never been. They've dragged me down, back to where I began. Words can build you up. Words can break you down. Start a fire in your heart or put it out. We've all heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie, right? That's a lie. Words can hurt, and words can encourage. Words carry meaning, and words mean very much to us. When we're wrong, words bring correction. When we're discouraged, words can be a means of perseverance. When we're angry, words can calm us down. When we're fearful, words can comfort us. It's that last quality of words that I want to spend time with today. Words can comfort us when we're afraid. Jesus has been engaged in dialogue with His disciples for some time here in John. He's preparing them for His departure. And He's preparing them for what to expect following His leaving them. He exhorted them in John 14:1 towards the beginning of this dialogue, Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. And in the text before us this morning, Jesus is continuing to give His disciples reasons for His coming departure. Why is it that He's leaving? And he furthers their understanding of the benefit that will accrue to them by his departure. But things aren't sitting so well with the disciples. They don't like the thought of Jesus leaving them. I think this text illustrates an irony when it comes to words of comfort. There are moments in which words of comfort are not immediately comforting. There are times when words of comfort do not provide immediate gratification. There are times when the words that are shared with us don't give us what we're longing for, but nonetheless are ultimately good for us to hear. There are moments in which we must speak words that do not meet with immediate approval, but words that nonetheless need to be said. They must be said because we know that they will have a long-term benefit that far outweighs short-term pain. Some words of comfort are hard to take immediately. But they have long-term benefit, which proves them to truly be comforting words. On the other hand, there are other words that are sometimes spoken with us that have an immediate gratification to them, but they don't have a lasting, enduring comfort to them because they're not grounded in reality or truth or goodness or beauty. And this sermon entitled Words of Comfort will consider an announcement, an answer, and an assurance. An announcement, an answer, and an assurance. Number one, we will see an announcement with great purpose. An announcement with great purpose. Jesus is telling His disciples that persecution is coming. The persecution the the disciples of Jesus have seen up to now has all been leveled against Jesus. Jesus' disciples have been pretty much left alone. All of the antagonism has been directed towards Jesus Himself. And now Jesus is about to depart. Some might think with Jesus' leaving, if He has been the source of antagonism with everyone else, once Jesus is gone, then won't things settle down? Isn't Jesus the One that's causing all of these troubles? Won't it settle down once Jesus has gone away? Won't it in some way subside? What Jesus is saying here is, No, it won't. Because the focus of Jesus' enemies will not merely shift to now those who follow Jesus. Those who take Jesus' name and Jesus' ministry. Why would this persecution come against Jesus' disciples? Well, because Jesus won't be left without a witness. He would send the Holy Spirit, He says, you're from the Father, to testify about Him. And He would make testimony through His disciples for the truth of the Gospel. It would be this ongoing witness before the world that the world would reject. And just as the world hated Jesus, they would hate those who bring the message of Jesus to them. Jesus explains why it is. It's because they love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus' own life and ministry and words exposed darkness. He was the light of the world. And all those who are made lights of the world by being in Christ also shine in dark places. And the darkness does not like the light. As Christian ministry continues, it will continue to produce a divide in this world. Jesus' own ministry caused a divide. Certainly, His ongoing ministry does. Jesus cautions us and warns us in advance. He says, as a result of the Gospel, a wife will be divided from her husband, a parents from their children, a child from his or her parents, brothers and sisters sometimes close friends separated as a result of one person coming to Christ and the other one rejecting the gospel. But while the world goes on hating God and the precious gift that God has given, His own Son Jesus, God in His marvelous mercy and grace continues to reach out to the world, providing the gift of the Holy Spirit and those by whom He has already redeemed to bring the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. Those who have been made redeemed sinners, people who were sinners who have been now redeemed, are now employed in God's great work and task of bringing the message of the truth of the Gospel to those who are still in darkness. Redeeming sinners. Wooing the rebellious. Transforming the wicked. Giving life to those who are dead in their sins. And the way that the world responds to these peacemakers who go about trying to make peace between man and God through Jesus Christ, sharing that message quite ironically, are treated horribly. But, it's nothing different than how Jesus was treated, right? So Jesus offers some words to encourage and comfort His disciples in light of the encounter that they're going to be in the middle of. So Jesus offers some words of encouragement. First of all, I want to say like four things about words here. First of all, the words that He shares here empower His disciples. The words that Jesus gives prepare His disciples for what is to come. But the coming of the kingdom and living under King Jesus means that tribulation is going to come to those who have gone from being rebels to God's kingdom to now being forgiven and redeemed citizens of God's kingdom. Those who are still rebelling against God will treat those who have been forgiven and redeemed with hatred and animosity. The reason for this is that those still dead in their sins, we're told in verse 3, do not know God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father and they have not known Me, Jesus says. It is often the case that God's people are few in number compared to the multitudes that stand against them. But we must not count it a strange thing to be hated and persecuted and opposed for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was hated and persecuted and opposed. But, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Moses stood against Pharaoh in God's power. David stood against Goliath. Gideon stood against the Midianites. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood against King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel stood against King Darius and his advisors. None of these men were great in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, they were quite weak and frail sometimes very young in age i love the uh example of gideon right he's the angel appears to gideon he's threshing weed in a wine press because he's scared for his life and this angel says to him the old you mighty man of valor. And I can always imagine the scene. You know, he's looking around. Who are you talking to? It's not me, you know. I am the of the least tribes. I'm the least guy in the least tribes. I'm the lowest of the low. You're calling me a mighty man of valor? There was nothing great about Gideon. But the God who is behind Gideon is great. You see, it would be through their very weakness, their very frailty, that would provide a setting upon which God's power and glory would be seen. Because none of these men could claim it for themselves. It would be all God. So it would be for the apostles. For the most part, these are a ragtag group of fishermen, right? There's some variation in occupation, but otherwise, nobodies. And they're chosen by Jesus to be the vessels through which the message of the Gospel would be proclaimed. It would be their very weakness and frailty that would provide a setting in which God's power and glory would be manifest. How can we stand in the coming persecution? Well, for one thing, by knowing from Jesus that this is part of the plan. These words are empowering. Jesus is telling what's going to happen beforehand. What's so helpful about that for us as we encounter trials is that maybe, perhaps, one of the things that would have come across the disciples' mind as soon as Jesus had gone away from them and they encountered trials and difficulties is something's gone wrong. Why isn't, you know, the kingdom coming in force? How is it possible that there's so much trouble and difficulty? By Jesus telling them beforehand, He's given them insight into the fact that He knows what's going to happen. Why? Because He's written history itself. God in His sovereignty is over all events that happen. You see, God's people are empowered by this knowledge because we hold to the promise that God works together all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Suffering is not some weird aberration of the script. It is part of the script. God is working in and through suffering It's been written in history. And it's coming about according to God's sovereign plan. And all of this will ultimately result in tremendous, unutterable glory. It empowers us to know that this is not some strange thing, but all part of God's marvelous and certainly to us mysterious plan. The words that Jesus shares here, not only empower, but they embolden. They give great boldness to these men. He tells them, you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. He says they'll even put you to death. What's really interesting about the way that he describes this, look at verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. To think that he is offering service to God. Do you see that? They're not only going to persecute you, but they're going to do it out of a thought process that they're serving God. That they are worshiping God by persecuting you. These individuals will persecute you, they'll excommunicate you, they'll separate you, and sometimes they'll kill you. And they're going to do so as an offering of worship unto God. This verse is proof that not all zeal is right. Just because someone is intense in their religion, that can all be misdirected and result in great evil. Passion must be directed by truth. Passion must be directed by truth. This brings to mind Paul's actions, doesn't it, before becoming a Christian? He even says of himself in Philippians that, according to... To zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. I mean, from his old mindset, following Judaism and rejecting Jesus, he was like, "I was like the most zealous. I was so zealous that I was outwardly persecuting the church. Remember he had gotten letters to bring these men in or to have them killed. He's the one standing by as Stephen has stoned the martyr. He's there holding the coats or the jackets as others pick up stones to stone him. When he's converted, he's on the road to find more Christians to put them to death or to arrest them. Paul was wrong then when he was sorry. He was wrong. He was sincerely wrong. He thought he was doing an act of worship unto God, but he was wrong. Remember when Jesus speaks to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He's persecuting Christians. Jesus, you're persecuting me. Through a miraculous series of events, we know of Saul's conversion and then his subsequent change of name from Saul to Paul and the marvelous things that God does in and through him following that. In some sense, this might feel like the worst sort of persecution. To be ostracized and martyred by people who say they're doing it in the name of God. Doing great evil in the name of false religion. And friends, this has happened over the centuries. This is not just Muslims doing things in the name of Allah, a false god, and saying that they're doing it as an act of worship. It's not just the Muslims who are engaged in these acts. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many people who have persecuted the genuine gospel, genuine Christians, and have even claimed themselves to be Christians in the midst of it. How many men were burned at the stake and hung for holding up the genuine truth of the gospel during the Middle Ages, the days preceding the Reformation and even around the time of the Reformation? There may be some irony here, though, because while these wrong-headed religious people believe that they're offering a sacrifice unto God, and they're all self-deceived about all of that, there is, in another sense, a true sacrifice being given. But it's being given by the Christian who willingly lays down his or her life as an offering to God, who makes a bold and courageous testimony for Jesus' sake, even in the midst of this person thinking they're doing what they're doing for God. There is a sacrifice being made, but it's not by the person doing the killing. It's by the person laying down their life as a martyr. Matthew ten nineteen and 20, Jesus says, When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you're to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus offers some words of comfort. These words empower. These words embolden. Thirdly, these words prepare. These are words that prepare. He's telling His disciples beforehand. He's preparing them for what's yet to come. He doesn't want them to be caught unaware. At first glance, these words do not seem like a comfort. But there's nothing so dangerous as to comfort someone with false expectations. I mean, what would the disciples rather hear at this moment? I'm going away and things are going to be tough. Really tough. You're going to be kicked out of synagogues and killed. Or would they rather hear, you know, I'm going to think I'm going to stick around for a while. And even if I do go away, everything's going to be easy. Life's going to be good. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What's true comfort? To be told all is well when things are not all well is no real comfort. The problem happened in the Old Testament with false prophets and wicked priests. See, it's happened two times. The phrase is almost identical. Jeremiah 6.14 and then Jeremiah 8.11. They had this stated. They have healed the wound or brokenness of my people lightly or superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. They've treated my people superficially because all they want to hear is peace. And so they're telling them what they want to hear, but there is no peace. You see, the immediate gratification of those words, that there's peace, seems like a comfort. That is until you realize there is no peace. Should more overt forms of persecution break out in this country, how many people who presently profess to be Christians would still do so? How many people loosely affiliate themselves with churches and are nothing more than stony ground hearers who immediately hear the word of God, receive it on the surface with joy, but soon fall away as soon as affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Jesus does not sugarcoat the gospel. The gospel is the greatest news you could ever hear. But on this earth, you will have tribulations. Tribulations. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed, as it has been said. You see, while Jesus was with them, He protected His disciples. He watched over them. Even when Jesus is arrested, right? Right after the moment where Jesus is arrested in John 18, 8 and 9, His concern is, I'm the guy. Arrest me. Leave these men alone. Jesus is watching over His disciples. Soon coming, there will be direct attacks on Jesus' disciples themselves. And this is why Jesus says, I didn't have to talk to you about this before, but now I do. Now it's an important thing for us to have a discussion about this. Forget get it in verse 4. second part of verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But, but knowing that Jesus knew that what they would be up against and foretold it, provided them with a quiet confidence even if it's difficulty that would be ahead. It would stir up in them further confidence in the Lord because Jesus is Lord of history and events and things are not spinning out of control. All is unfolding according to His providential guidance. I've never understood it when some disaster happens, people finding some solace in, oh, God knew nothing about this. What solace is there in that? So the world is spinning out of control and God's hands are off everything? Everything? There's no comfort in that. There is comfort in knowing that all things happen for God's glorious purposes, even when I can't search them out, even when things go beyond my comprehension. Imagine that things going beyond my comprehension. The fourth thing words do here: and words preserve. Words preserve. Remembering what Jesus said would provide fortitude to his disciples when the hour of trouble was at hand. Jesus shares these things because he wants them to be recalled in that hour. Look at verse 4, first part of it. These things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember what I have told you. you might remember that I told you of these things. He wants these to be brought to their memory in the midst of their darkest hour. Or what seems like their darkest hour. How do you persevere through suffering? I think Jesus points us to himself. Realize that you're not alone, but merely participating in the suffering of your Savior. Just as confidence in Jesus as Lord provides us with boldness, reliance upon Jesus as our Savior is what. God causes us to persevere through it. You can't rely on natural strength. You need supernatural strength and fortitude to bear up under a trial. You have to trust truths like 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. You see, while the enemies seem like they are winning at the hour of our demise, when considered in light of the hour of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has come, it's coming, and here it is, we realize that what was seemingly Jesus' worst hour was in fact the hour of His triumph and victory. So it is for those who follow Jesus what appears to be our worst hour, our darkest hour, the winning blow of our adversaries, God uses for His glory. Looking down through the history of the church, many have remarked that the church grew through the blood of the martyrs. Things that we would look at as grotesque and horrendous. Men and women of the faith standing firm as their Killed in numerous fashions. MacArthur points out even a quick consideration of early church church tradition when he tells us, Peter, Andrew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, were crucified. Bartholomew whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, and Paul were beheaded. Thomas was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged to death. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Philip were stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Timothy, and Stephen were also killed. And that's just the start. This continued through the early church, through the medieval church, through the Church of the Reformation, and even in the modern day church. Christians continue to be killed for their faith all across the world. Numbers of martyrdoms continuing to accelerate. How do they persevere? How do they hang in there? By knowing they're not alone. By knowing that their Savior, Jesus, is with them. And that these events are happening in accordance with His plan. For He won't allow anything to come into the life of any of His dear children that He hasn't planned. And He has a purpose for it all. Point two. Jesus makes this announcement, but it's met with an answer of undesirable consequence. Jesus says, now that I'm going to him who sent me, none of you are asking, where are you going? Now, at first glance, this statement sounds strange, since not once but twice we read of a question akin to the very one coming from the disciples that Jesus says that they're not asking. John thirteen thirty-six. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Then in John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So Jesus here in this text says, look at it with me. Verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going. Seems odd at the surface, doesn't it? Hadn't he just been asked that question two times in the previous two chapters? Let me quickly mention two ways in which we can understand what Jesus is saying here. The first way is to consider Jesus' words as a positive statement. In other words, you'd be saying, now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me where are you going. In other words, you now know where I'm going. So you're not asking me anymore. That's a way you could understand this. In other words, he's saying you feel no need to ask me this question now. Don't have to reiterate it because there's no uncertainty about where I'm headed. But if that's the case in the next verse, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. He's simply asking, well, if you know where I'm going, why are you sorrowful about this? There's still a contrast there. But more likely, I, I believe that Jesus' words in verse 5. What is Jesus saying? I think he's saying that none of you have really inquired about where I'm headed. Your previous questions were consumed with yourself, with your own concerns. Where you might be left should I depart? How to avoid that separation by following? You even see that, you know, Simon Peter, you know, where are you going? He said, Where I go, you can't follow me. And then John 14, Thomas says, We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? They're concerned about themselves traveling with Jesus. They're not concerned about where Jesus himself is going so much as that they would just go with him wherever it is. But if you made serious inquiry, I believe Jesus is saying here, and understood where I was going, you would rejoice. But right now, your self-interest is consuming you. You're not thinking about where I'm going. You're thinking about yourself in light of where I'm going. Jesus is not saying that they've never asked Him this question, but remarking that it's strange that they're not asking it now. Now would be the time for such a question, but it's not forthcoming. The thought of their own impending loss has suffocated any real consideration regarding where Jesus is headed and what the destination will mean for Him. Had they done that, had they really thought about where Jesus is going, they would have rejoiced to know that He was going back to His Father. That He was going to be with His Father for though they might feel the loss, it would be His gain. Think about it for just a minute. Whenever we lose a loved one who was a dear brother or sister in Christ, there's no reason to be sorrowful for them. They're in a much better place. The problem is we become so consumed with ourselves, our own feelings of loss. I'm not saying that's not that's human we work through all of that. I'm not saying you're evil. Should you go through those emotions? We should be real about them. But if you think about it, if you step away from it for just a moment... If they're a Christian, they're in a place of amazing splendor and beauty. They're with Jesus. So much better than here. I think the disciples have fallen into that same trap. They're not so much concerned about what's happening with Jesus themselves. What do you mean you're going away? How can we follow you? Where are you going? They're unable to enter into their master's joy. And so Jesus exposes what's in their hearts. He's there encouraging them. He's there providing them with comfort. But look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. See? Jesus has given these words as words of comfort, but their immediate reception is nothing but pain and sorrow. Disciples seem so absorbed in the feeling of loss that they're unable to receive the positive benefit of Jesus' words. They can only see loss in Jesus' words. So sorrow fills their hearts. But that wasn't the intended result. Remember, Jesus had already told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be sorrowful. Don't be filled with pain. But the words that Jesus is speaking has brought about a condition that was not what He ultimately wanted for them. And yet, He still told them these things. Why? Why? Again, I return to my theme. Comforting words might not always feel comforting at the moment. So Jesus continues to minister to His disciples, showing such tremendous patience and adding benefit upon benefit. And so point number three, we see an assurance of coming comfort. An assurance of coming comfort. It's for the disciples' good that Jesus goes away, He tells them, for the sending of the paraclete, the helper, or otherwise translated, and I think appropriate here, the comforter, is dependent upon Jesus going to the Father. He says, unless I go, the comforter won't be sent. But if I go, He will be sent. He assures His disciples that it is better for them should He go He's already explained his departure would be temporary, and his going away, John 14.2, would be to prepare a place for them. He also told them that by his going, they would be enabled to do greater works, John 14.12. He also told them that by his going, it would impart richer knowledge to them, John 14.20. They would look back on all of these things and have clarity and understanding of everything he's talked about. He also mentioned in John 14.28 that it would draw them closer in the Spirit. He has just listed advantage after advantage after advantage after advantage of him going. And they're still in pain. And so he super adds to those even further. He says, you might lose my visible presence, but it would be more than compensated for by the coming of the comforter. Comfort in the fullest sense imaginable. God is going to provide comfort to his children in the person of the third person of the triune God. He's not going to send words of comfort. He's going to send the person, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he would equip God's children with all the resources they would need to persevere for Christ's sake and for God's glory. I think it's good counsel for us to return to this text whenever we're tempted to say, man, I just wish you know Jesus was still here physically. I wish I was living when Jesus was alive on earth. I, know I myself have thought those things. Wouldn't that be be cool, right? Walk around with Jesus like that? But Jesus told His disciples it would be better for them for Him to leave. Guess what? We live on that side of His leaving. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says that's a better condition for us. What will the Comforter do? Well, as it relates to Jesus' disciples, He will testify about Jesus As will Jesus' disciples, as we saw at the end of chapter 15. The Holy Spirit and Jesus' disciples will carry on the ministry of Jesus. Since the disciples have been with Jesus from the beginning, they're uniquely suited to sharing about Jesus, telling the world about Christ. They would communicate that through speech and through written words, the events of Jesus' life and the meaning of those events. They would tell the story, and the Holy Spirit would be working to convince the world of the reality of that story. We see a fulfillment of this in Acts 5.32, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. You hear that? We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. We and the Holy Spirit testify about these things. What will the Comforter do, though? What will the Holy Spirit do? What will the paraclete do in reference to the world? Jesus explains that the Holy Spirit will indwell believers. The Spirit's presence, though, will have implications on the entire world. If we think about this in terms of law, think of courtroom terminology, the Holy Spirit functions as a sort of defense attorney for believers. Sometimes people have translated the word Advocate. He is the believer's advocate. But interesting in this text, as we get into verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, we see that the Holy Spirit, in reference to the world, functions more like a prosecuting attorney. He's a defense attorney for believers, but he's in the prosecution against the world. And in this sense, he functions just as Jesus did during Jesus' earthly ministry. He's an encourager and teacher and comforter to Jesus' followers, and He's an indictment and judgment on those who reject the Gospel. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world to shame it and convince the world of its guilt and its need for repentance. In some cases, this will result in its repentance and the conversion of the lost, but in other times, it will serve to just further harden hardened hearts leading eventually to their everlasting punishment. The Holy Spirit finds the world guilty on three counts. Three counts. They're listed for us here. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Sin, righteousness, judgment. He says concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in Jesus. The world's unbelief prevents it from receiving forgiveness and eternal life. These can only be had in and through Jesus Christ. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. This is itself to be considered both a gracious work designed to bring men and women to recognize their need, but also will eventually increase their guilt should they not believe. To convict the world concerning righteousness, we're told because Jesus will not be seen. You see, Jesus in His earthly ministry demonstrated perfect righteousness, spotless righteousness, true righteousness. And He contrasted it with the sham righteousness of the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and priests. Jesus was put to death as if He was a criminal, as if He had sinned, when in reality He had done nothing of the sort. How do we know that that is the case? Well, we're told in Scripture that the verification of His sinlessness is seen by His resurrection. He was vindicated of all charges when God the Father rose His Son from the dead. You see, the wages of sin is death. But for one who hasn't sinned, there is no wage that would give them to death. Jesus, being perfect and spotless in His righteousness, proved exactly who He was. He said He was. He was the very Son of God. And the Holy Spirit will continue that work after Jesus' departure. He'll empower the witness of Jesus' disciples to follow Christ and thereby demonstrate what is needed is not a righteousness of our own. Because if you try to make a righteousness of your own, it will always fall short. It is never good enough to be guilty of even the slightest bit of the law is to make you a lawbreaker and to be guilty and a rebel. To lie once is to be a liar. To steal once is to be a thief. Even our good deeds are like a filthy rag in God's sight. We are incapable of making ourselves righteous with God through our own works. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of this. And as they try in futility to accomplish that, they'll, His work is to eventually either condemn them for it or, by God's grace, Grant them eyes to see and heart to believe. Recognize that they need to look to the righteousness of Jesus, not their own, that they might be saved. And thirdly, concerning judgment, because Satan has been judged. You notice how horrible this world's judgment is? You look at the proceeding and proceedings in the Supreme Court. I mean, how many of those judgments do you agree with? How many of those judgments do you think square with Scripture today? How many judgments made by humans are really true, morally pure, and righteous judgments? Even those judgments that humans get right, they're not satisfactory. They're not enough. The Holy Spirit convicts convicts the world of this demonstrating Christ's reign and Satan's demise and condemnation. I had read Acts 2 this morning for a reason because I feel like it does a really good job of showing how the Holy Spirit is in action doing these very things. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, judgment. And since we read the whole passage, I'm just going to really quickly, if you want to turn over to Acts 2, starting in verse 22, I just want to quickly highlight, I just want you to see this. Righteousness, sin, Judgment. Righteous sin, judgment. Or sin, righteous judgment. These three things. Holy Spirit bringing conviction on people regarding. I think it's real informative for our own presentation of the gospel. What should we do in sharing the truth of Jesus with others? We should make sure that we talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. We see here the righteousness of Jesus being, being spoken of. This man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. This man was unique. He was uniquely righteous. And you saw him. He was in your midst. You, watch this happen. Verse 23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Sin! You're a sinner. You nailed him to the cross. This perfect, spotless lamb of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. So it's impossible for him to be held in his power. His righteousness. He's clean. He did nothing wrong. Go down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. His resurrection. His vindication. He's pure. He's spotless. He's righteous verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, you see that? Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. We're now experiencing the blessing that Jesus said we would receive. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And it's as a result of that pouring out that you're seeing this, that you're observing this. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Here's the judgment. He is Lord and Christ. Again, we see sin highlighted in Acts 2, 36, second part of it. This Jesus whom you crucified. What's well, the result of all of this? And you can read it for the rest of the passage. 37 to 47. When they heard this. They were pierced to the heart. Human words can't pierce the heart. Only the working of the Holy Spirit can transform the heart. That's why, in the same room, people can, one person can be listening to the gospel and come under deep conviction, know his sin, know that Jesus' righteousness is what he needs because his own righteousness is filthy rags, and cry out to a Savior, knowing that a judgment is coming. And so, either. Your sin is judged on Jesus or you're judged for your sin one way or the other. There's a difference between a person who recognizes all of that sitting in the same room and the other person next to him doesn't even care or disagrees with it all altogether. You see the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit and then the after effects of all that as you read the rest of that passage. It's just so glorious. 3,000 souls... They're meeting together. They're selling their possessions. They're giving to anyone who has need. We see love and community and fellowship. And the Lord is adding to the number day by day. There's this wonderful, wonderful community that started. Sometimes words of comfort aren't much of a comfort to us immediately, but they are in the long run. Some words have to be shared at a time when they will most likely bring immediate sorrow or pain. But they're shared anyway because they have long-term benefit. I told my wife some time ago that should I die, I want her to remarry. Being the dear, sweet wife that Leah is, she said to me, I could never do that. There's no one as great as you. And as much as that is a wonderful sentiment, I know that's certainly not the case but it does further prove her status as being the best wife in the world. But anyway, um, I reiterated my statement to her because while considering my death might not be a heartwarming moment between the two of us, I knew it would have a long-term benefit should I indeed die, leaving with the knowledge that I long for her to enjoy the blessing that is in marriage, whether I am there to benefit from it or not. Well, I had an interesting discussion this past week while I was in Houston at the Circe Conference. I was sitting at the table eating lunch and a gentleman sat a seat away from me and he began eating he looked really familiar to me but I couldn't place my finger on why but within seconds of exchanging introductions he immediately gasped at the table Jess from Math 151 here before me was Randy Hines a classmate of mine from my freshman year at Texas A&M Calculus 1 class I hadn't seen him in 17 years And to be quite honest, I hadn't thought of them much since those days. But he excitedly recounted the time that we had in class. And he remembered the help that I gave him in tutoring for the class. He told me that he had periodically thought about me over the years and had been praying for me. And I was deeply touched. After telling him a little bit about myself and my family and my ministry, I asked him about his life and he shared the following story. After A&M, Randy had pursued further education, which led him to Washington, D.C., where he would meet and become close friends with two roommates, Matt and Edward, while studying theology and philosophy. His friend Matt would later be married to Lucy. As you see in the picture, I think we've got a picture of them. Randy is the one here with a, you know, a little bit less hair. Um, and then that's his friend Matt to his, his right, our left, and that's and Matt's wife, Lucy. They would be there and um, Edward would be there also with them. Matt and Lucy would have three boys. Throughout this time, Randy dated several different girls and he would bring them over to their house because he loved their marriage so much that he wanted to get Matt and Lucy's opinion of any girl he started to date and see what they thought of him. And he said that they kind of met with a lot of disapproval all over those years and so nothing ever really transpired and they were right. Well, sometime into Matt and Lucy's relationship, Matt was diagnosed with lung cancer and he eventually died to the spread of that cancer through his body a mere ten days after the birth of his third son, leaving Lucy behind with their three boys. But a week before his departure from this world to be with Jesus, he told Lucy that he wanted her to feel free to marry again. As much as Lucy didn't want to hear those words from Matt at that time, It would be those words that would give her peace and confidence and comfort in the time ahead. Roughly two years later, Randy and Lucy would be married. They would later add a baby girl to the three boys in their home already. Here's a picture of their 13-month-old daughter, Teresa. At the risk of putting words into someone's mouth, I told Randy while I sat at the table that if that very situation had happened in my home, I would be delighted to know that one of my best friends had now become husband to my wife, to love and cherish and protect her, and then to love and care for my children. Randy told me at the table that he looks forward to continuing opportunities to pour out his love to these three boys and to tell them of their amazing dad. Here's a picture of Randy and Lucy before they had their daughter. So this is with Randy and Lucy, and then that's Matt and Lucy's three boys that are with them. You see, Matt had set the stage for this beautiful thing by mentioning some words of comfort that immediately stung Lucy. Words that forced a consideration of his soon coming death, but words that would provide the joy of knowing his blessing on Lucy's soon coming marriage to another as he went to be with Jesus. Sometimes words of comfort are like this. They don't really, they don't ignore reality. So they don't sugarcoat difficulties and trials. They deal with things as best they can, but speak to future hope and glory beyond the pain. You see, while we'll see pain in this life, there is glory to follow. While Christians carry a cross in this world, we'll be granted crowns in heaven. While this world will bring Christian suffering and pain precisely because they are redeemed and are called to be holy as God is holy, that's not the end of the story. Remember, the Gospel includes the greatest news ever told, the result of the, the best, the ultimate, happily ever after story. There is true and everlasting comfort in Jesus for not only through Him, or it's only through Him that we are reconciled with God question to all of you today is, has the Holy Spirit been doing that work, convicting you perhaps today of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Will you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today? If you reject the Gospel, your end will be eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 So there is no greater comfort that I can offer you than Jesus. And while I cannot promise you health, wealth, and prosperity here and now, Quite the opposite. Walking with Jesus will bring you persecution and trials and difficulty in this life. I can promise you that those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be granted eternal, abundant life. Will be given the forgiveness of their sins. Will be given the very righteousness of Jesus. And will enjoy joy in the presence of God forever. The true message of comfort might bring pain at first but its ultimate result is beautiful and glorious beyond your wildest dreams. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Those, my dear friends, are words of comfort. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for true and sincere words of comfort. Thank You that we, as Your children, those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we have this comfort. Yes, immediate, it might mean some pain and sorrow in this life, but it is followed by an ending that is beyond our wildest dreams. Thank You for such a great gift. Help us. To take these words to heart. Holy Spirit, work in us. Break up hardened hearts in this place. Make them soft and pliable to receive the Word implanted which is able to save their soul. Thank You for being our comforter, Holy Spirit. Thank You for being our advocate thank you for convincing us of the reality of sin and righteousness and judgment. And thank you for leading us to Jesus that we would find in Him forgiveness and eternal life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.